in celebration of the presentation of the King, the glorious resurrection, and the global ramifications of his victory, we pause to consider these amazing events. This is the third sermon in the series of three, today looking at the Pentecost. Our old covenant reading coming from Isaiah and chapter 60. Isaiah and chapter 60, as the apostle speaking of the glory of Israel in the millennial kingdom, in anticipation of the coming of the glorious Christ. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about and see. All they gather themselves together. They come to thee. Thy sons shall come from far and thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. Then thou shalt see and flow together and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. The multitude of camels shall cover thee. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah All they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto thee. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister unto thee. They shall come up with acceptance upon thine altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Who are these that fly as a cloud, and as the doves to their windows? Surely the isles shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish first to bring thy sons from far their silver and their gold with them unto the name of the Lord thy God and to the Holy One of Israel because he hath glorified thee. And the sons of strangers shall build up thy walls and their king shall minister unto thee. For in my wrath I smote thee, but in my favor have I had mercy on thee. Therefore thy gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day nor night that men bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be brought. For the nation and the kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. The glory of Lebanon shall come unto thee, the fir tree, the pine tree, and the box together, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious." The sons also of them that afflicted thee shall come bending upon thee. And all they that despise thee shall bow themselves down at the soles of thy feet. And they shall call thee the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Luke writing to us in the Acts of the Apostles, Acts in chapter 2, the first 21, the first 21 verses. By the same spirit, the Apostle Luke writes, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like of a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. 
And when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in his own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Pergia and Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Greeks and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. They were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken unto my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy and errant and funny authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now the entire message of the gospel must be understood holistically as well as theologically and historically. While the resurrection is the centrality of the gospel, without it, we would have no salvation, we would be damned forever. Now, while the resurrection is the centrality of the gospel, it cannot stand alone, but must be coupled with the incarnation, the Lord's ministry, his Passover declaration of the coming of the kingdom, his unjust trial and crucifixion, his burial and subsequent resurrection, as well as his 40-day presentation when he would search out the land as the spies did in Joshua's day, along with his ascension, and then the culmination of this entire holistic process, the Pentecost, when Jesus fulfills his promise and sends the comfort of the Spirit of God in order to empower his people. And these are all the essential components of the gospel message, of the work of God. Now, if you omit one of these, the entire the entire picture just disintegrates. The entire message of Christ coming disintegrates. So they all must be looked at together. Now, before the Lord willfully placed himself upon the cross of wrath to pay for the sins of his people in our behalf, he declared that the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis chapter 3 was at hand. In other words, Jesus was about to crush all of his enemies spoken of as the seed of the serpent. It would be a comprehensive victory, and that's something that we don't recognize as often as we should. It is a comprehensive victory. Jesus does not have to come back to fulfill his promise. He's already here, empowering his church, fulfilling his promise to destroy the seed of the serpent by the seed of the woman, Christ himself. So it would be a comprehensive victory with a comprehensive empowerment 
And that's the only way it would happen, by a comprehensive empowerment, as a result of Christ's conquest over sin, death, and the grave. And while all authority was conferred upon the Lord as well as his power, that power would only be effectuated for the eternal church, for the church of Jesus Christ at Pentecost, when God would finally empower his people, pouring out himself upon his people in order to give them that power to go into the world. Now that would come 50 days after the resurrection at the Feast of Pentecost. The word Pentecost simply means 50. It was a commemoration of a celebration that God had commanded. So therefore, let us consider first the meaning as well as the result of the Pentecost. According to Leviticus 23, Pentecost celebrated the giving of the law. It was a time when they would reflect upon the law of God. It was celebrating the giving of the law because the the law was so glorious. God had gloriously given Israel the law of God. That was their organizing structure of their society, their life, their world. So it was that celebration of God's giving the law. It was a commanded feast that the Israelites had to keep each and every year as they would reflect upon God's gracious law. The word Pentecost is a Greek derivative of the Hebrew word Shavat. So as the Jew would celebrate Shavat, they were celebrating the Christian Pentecost. And this feast was called also, it had another portion of it, which was called the Festival of Weeks. In the Old Testament, you find this in Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 16. And the festival, and this is important, and the festival of reaping. So the Pentecost, the Shavat, was not only when they would commemorate the law, they would they would glorify God because God had given them the law, but it was also this festival of reaping. It was the time of the harvest. Shavat or, or Pentecost marks what is called the counting of the omer. In other words, the omer was a measure of barley grain. And the counting of the omer represented that spiritual preparation and anticipation of the giving of the law, which was symbolically represented by the grain or the bread of life, because the omer, the grain, was symbolically what they would use to make bread, of course, and symbolically it was the bread of life that Jesus said, I am going, this is my body, I'm going to give this for you. Give us this day our daily bread, not the bread of the omer, physically, but the spiritual bread of Christ. And this signified that man was not to live by bread alone, but by the word of God. Man's substance was not to be found in in obedience to the commandments of God, nor in the physical sustenance of food, but in the word of God, in the word that God had given them, even the Christ, who is the Lagos, the word of God. So Pentecost has a direct component intimately associated with it, and that is the law of God. Pentecost symbolizes the renewal of the law and the gathering in of the saints because that is what's happening. When you read of of, of Peter's declaration, speaking in these languages where everyone heard it, he was gathering in from every nation God's people. So it was the time of great gathering, the gathering of the saints for the express purpose of reconstructing the global order by sending out the gospel. So let's consider the Pentecost itself. At Pentecost, God pours out the Spirit. He pours himself out into the world with what I call evangelical power. 
It was the time when everyone would then realize this is the gospel and now I have been empowered and I'm going to go out and I'm going to change the world. And this was clearly anticipated throughout the Old Testament, but more specifically as Peter dictates by the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2. Notice Joel chapter 2 beginning in verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward. There's your time stamp. Now we know that that afterward, that afterward is actually the New Testament age because Peter is dictating to us this is when this is going to happen. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Notice the universality of the evangelistic thrust. On all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids, in those days will I pour out my spirit. Notice the comprehensive nature of who is involved in this evangelistic thrust. Everyone, no one's left out. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord hath said and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. So Peter is quoting from that text. Pentecost, in other words, inaugurates a time of global reformation and global revival through the gathering of God's people. Gathering them and then sending them out. It is an actual power transference of bold confidence, theological understanding, and theological application. That is what Pentecost is all about. So when you become a child of God, when you experience your personal, if you would, Pentecost, it is a transference of God's power and confidence and understanding and application. Because without that application, it's just theological head-scratching. So whenever a saint is converted, it is a Pentecost moment. It is the quintessential template of true Holy Spirit missionary revivalism and reformation. And it usually comes without observation. That initial salvation usually comes quietly without observation. But the result is measurable. In the individual, it is measured by faith, obedience, passion, the hunger and thirsting of the righteousness. All of these things are measurable. Now globally, the power moves men and nations to missionary endeavors at home and abroad. The result is, an, in other words, the result is an evangelical global gospel explosion. A reorientation of both God's law and God's power. Pentecost represents the re-establishment of Trinitarianism over polytheism. A re-establishment of God's sovereignty over against man's autonomy and the declaration of the kingdom of God over the kingdom of man. It represents a declaration of regeneration and liberty from the darkness and the bondage of sin and God's wrath. It speaks of righteousness, justice, and peace. Pentecost is the declaration that the promise of Genesis chapter 3, Psalm 2, Psalm 89, Psalm 46, Psalm 110, and all of the Psalms has come to its fullest, complete end and fulfillment. So really, Pentecost is the beginning of the kingdom's establishment and advancement because that's when it came with power. Things really began to change. 
And as a result of the resurrection, Christ's victory established his claim upon both his people and his world. Notice, this was everyone heard in their own language. This is a representation of all of the nations of the world because Christ's claim is now over all the nations of the world. Pentecost is a declaration that God has powerfully and intimately intervened into the world for a total victory and a total dominion conquest. Now, Pentecost did not establish a future hope to be anticipated in a later era, but it was a realized reality, which was a here and now reality. In other words, the kingdom had actually come with power. Everything that was anticipated in the Old Testament is now at hand. And it has been with us since AD 33. It was the reinstatement of of God's law, a guaranteed reality, ensuring that God's promise to reestablish his kingdom under the law of God would be the construct of history, the organizing principle for men and nations. And by it, he has not only called remnant mankind to ethical and covenantal obedience, but he has empowered them for that obedience and to proclaim that gospel of obedience to the world. Notice the anticipation of the account in Ezekiel chapter 36. This is anticipating Pentecost. By inspiration of God, the prophet says this, beginning verse 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Notice, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. You shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and ye shall be my people and I will be your God. Jump down to verse 33. Thus saith the Lord God, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities and the wastes shall be builded. Notice, a reconstruction of the world. The waste places shall be builded and the desolate land shall be tilled. It will be tilled, just like Adam was told to till the garden. And this is why the Christ, when he shows himself at first to Mary, she thought he was the gardener because that's what the gardener does. They break up the fallow ground and they plant a good seed. And the desolate land shall be tilled whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say, This land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about you shall know that I, the Lord, builded the ruined places and plant that was desolate. I, the Lord, had spoken it and I will do it. Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. I will increase them with men like a flock as the holy flock, as the flock of Jerusalem in her solemn feasts, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of men, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Notice this this idea of building the kingdom. That is the commission of the saint. Their one true mission is building the kingdom of God by declaring God's word. So Pentecost is the eschatological realization of Ezekiel's prophecy and the evangelistic reaping of the world. That's what we do. We are the gardeners. We are the reapers. Pentecost began the reaping of the harvest. Now consider in the New Testament the lamentation of our Lord before he went to the cross. 
in Luke in chapter 10 and verse 2, and John chapter 4, verse 35. Therefore said he unto them, Jesus speaking, The harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest, or gatherers. John 4.35 Say ye not, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. Remember now, Jesus is identifying the field as the world. Matthew chapter 13, the field is the world. Look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And when was harvest day? Pentecost. The prophecy of Joel in chapter 3 speaks to this situation in verse 11 and following. Notice the call, assemble yourselves. The gathering, assembling of yourselves. And come, all ye nations, and gather yourselves together round about, thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the nations round about. Now that word in your King James heathen is actually the word nations. Verse 13. Notice the language of harvesting. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And the day of the Lord was actually Pentecost. Or the crucifixion, or the incarnation, it's all one. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw the shining. The Lord shall also roar out of Zion, and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake. Notice, when the Pentecost spirit came, things were shaking but the Lord will be the hope of His people and the strength of the children of Israel. This is referring to the gospel call and the empowerment of the church through Pentecost. This points to the shaking of the earth on that day, on that day of the harvest. The shaking of the earth and the day of the Lord both, in this instance, is referring to the day that God poured out His Spirit upon all flesh. Notice the result of this event in Joel 3, 18 and following. And it shall come to pass in that day, there's your timestamp. what day? The day of Pentecost that the mountains shall drop down new wine and the hills shall flow with milk. Milk is the word, the wine is the atonement and the rivers of Judah, here the rivers of living water, for out of your bellies will flow rivers of living water. Whenever you preach the gospel, that's what's happening. And a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. Notice God is going to destroy the enemies. But Judah shall dwell forever and Jerusalem from generation to generation. An amazing prophecy. Now at this point in history, in the days of Joel, merely in anticipation, there was not yet that pouring out of the Spirit. And therefore there were not many laborers. Everything was localized. You don't hear of Jeremiah preaching one sermon and 3,000 are saved. No. But at Pentecost, which is the time of the harvest, by adding many laborers to the work of the harvesting, instead of the concentration on Israel and maybe some of the nations around Israel, God would now be gathering from every tongue and every nation, every kindred and people. In other words, He'd be gathering people from the four corners of the earth 
the saints are referred to as laborers. Remember, what did Paul say? He said, we are laborers with Christ. We are co-laborers together with Christ. And this is the intent of the parable of Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. Notice, another parable he put forth unto them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which soweth good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the household came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, And I'll tell you, in my estimation, just as a footnote, I think that enemy was Adam. He's the initial sowing of tares after he fell from grace at the fall. An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Who are the reapers? We are. Gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. But note how Jesus explains this parable in verse 36 and following. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came unto him saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the the devil, or in the Greek, it's the slanderer. The harvest is the end of the world. But literally, you see, this is where we have a tr- problem here. The word world there, there are two words in the Greek for world. One is cosmos, okay, the cosmos. The other one is anon. This word is not cosmos. It's not the cosmos. This word is the anon, which should be literally translated. And I know sometimes this gets people crazy when I say this. But the word is age. It should be translated age. The reapers come at the end of the age. The reapers are the messengers. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this age. Not the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send forth his messengers, you and me, they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend when we preach the gospel and them which do iniquity. This is what we do when we confront the wicked with the word of God. The language is very curious, however. While it is indeed true that we gather out of the world all things that offend and separate them from the sheep, Jesus actually is saying something more particular. He makes it a point to say that by preaching the gospel, we are also gathering out of the kingdom all things that offend. He says, out of the kingdom all things that offend. Now, if we consider the external kingdom of God as the external church, then Jesus might actually be saying that whenever the gospel is preached in the church... Because not everybody in the church is saved. That's just the way it is. And that's why from the pulpit, the minister should always caution his hearers to make their calling and election sure. Make your calling sure. Examine yourself. Ask yourself the question, 
Am I passionate about the things of God? Am I living at the margin? Am I just a moral person? Do I really fear the Lord? Do I have faith? Do I trust God? Or am I just playing church? So he's saying that whenever the gospel is preached in the church, those who are only make-believers, actually the tares, and not true believers, will also be gathered with the reprobate. We gather out of the kingdom as well as out of the world those that offend so that the kingdom is purified. Because what we're looking for is a perfect church with only believers. Wouldn't that be nice? And we do this by using the Word of God because the Word of God is a two-edged sword. It is life unto life and death unto death. And then Jesus says this in verse 42, And shall cast them into a furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The wrath of God will be upon them. And they will finally have their place in hell. But note the end result. Verse 43, Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. We can never underestimate the importance of the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament is extremely critical. The New Testament marked the end of the age, that's why Jesus is saying at the end of the age, of the ceremonial observances and the sequestering of the Spirit. As a result of Pentecost, that time of the reestablishment of the law and the harvest, a new age begins. We are in the new age. Not as the, the weirdos speak about a new age, but we're in the new age of the kingdom. All things are made new. Consider this in Revelation 21.5. And he that sat upon the throne, that's the Christ, said, Behold, I make all things new, and he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Now a lot of people look at this and say, Well, obviously this is a future event. Jesus is going to make all things new. Well, wait a minute. This is not a future event. This is not a future event after the world is destroyed. It is what God is doing now through His people as long as, and I make a very, very careful enunciation, as long as His people remain faithful and vigilant to the truth of the Word of God. Because when they don't, we get plunged into the darkness that we're in now in 2023. Now, let's consider then, if this is true, that all things are made new and being made new now, not in a future time after the world is in a blaze, consider what things become new as a result of the pouring out of the Spirit. Just think about it. Christ came as the sovereign conquering king to perfect the world by making it new. So when you think about this, think about what has been made new. We have a New Testament. We have a new birth. We have the new man. We have a new covenant. We have new wine and old wineskins. We have new bottles. We have a, we are a new lump. All things are made new. We have a new commandment. John speaks about a new commandment I give you. We have a new doctrine. We are a new sharp threshing instrument, according to Isaiah 41.15. We are the instruments. We have this new garment, a new cloth. There's a new kingdom according to Matthew 26, 29. We speak with new tongues, not gibberish, mind you, but we speak the gospel. And you know, when you speak about the gospel, use words like atonement, forgiveness, repentance. It's like another language to the reprobate. 
I remember many, many years ago, I wanted to make a t-shirt with the, uh, an imprint of Thomas Watson. And I brought the artist a book by Thomas Watson, and it was called The Doctrine of Repentance. A young man looked at it, and he said, I, I can do that. And then he said, uh, can I ask you a question? Uh, what is repentance? There's another language. So we speak with new tongues. We have new garments. We're a new creature. We, we live a new and living way. Jesus was placed in a new sepulcher. And we are given a new name. The kingdom is the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth. It is now and it is coming in its perfection. The reality of the power and the work of the Spirit of God at Pentecost is proven by the fact of history itself. You can't argue with history. And how through the harvesting of souls, cultures and nations have been reinvented according to a biblical model. All you need to do is look at history. So let's look at history. Consider these historical facts. Church history is of the utmost importance after the scripture itself. Because history is the record of God's dealing in the world and with the world. So if you want to know what God does and how he works, study history. And you'll see the hand of God moving throughout the nations. According to Philip Schaff, he tells us what history is. Notice what he says. The history of the church is the rise and progress of the kingdom of heaven upon earth. For the glory of God and for the salvation of the world beginning with Adam and the garden promise of the serpent bruiser. It encompasses the Old Testament faithful, the incarnation of Christ and his kingdom plan, our redemption bringing each of his own to himself through his resurrection and his consummation. When it is considered as a science and an art, in the subjective sense, church history is the faithful and lifelike description of the origin and progress of this heavenly kingdom. It aims to reproduce in thought and embody in language the outward and inward development down to the present time. It is a continuous commentary. History is a continuous commentary on the Lord's twin parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. It shows at once how Christianity spreads over the world and how it penetrates, transforms, and sanctifies the individual and all the departments and institutions of social life. You see, that's the problem. We have been remiss. We have been neglecting and delinquent in trying to get into the institutions of this world to change them. We've let them go. We said, well, the devil owns it all. Let's just wait for Jesus. But notice here what... Chef is saying, it thus embraces not only the external forces of Christendom, but more especially her inward experiences, her religious life, her mental and moral activity, her conflicts with the ungodly world, her sorrows and sufferings, her joys and triumphs over sin and error. Church history holds the prominent position within the rest of the world, the rest of the world's history. It is the hub of all history, the center around which revolves all world history. You think about this. Sometimes we teach our children that church history is within the realm of world history. It's the other way about. It's church history in the world is within the realm of that. The world is in the realm of church history. Notice he says, it is the hub of all history. The center around which revolves all world history. The current and ultimate aim of all universal world history is the kingdom of God. Established by Jesus Christ 
all other institutions are made subservient to it. In the interest of Christianity, the entire world is governed. God has orchestrated all history to revolve around his decree for the progress and development of Christianity. Secular history does not control church history, but rather is controlled by it. World history serves the end of God and the goal of the kingdom of God. Secular history has no meaning apart from the church, end quote. Consider the explosion and the spread of the gospel as a result of Pentecost. The transformation of the world begins 50 days after the resurrection, proving that the coronation of the king at the ascension was completed and his authority and dominion over all creation was ratified. And at that time, God then pours out, after that that 50 days, he pours out his spirit upon 3,000 souls and the race to conquer the known world commences. This pouring out of the spirit legitimized each and every one of his people as prophet and priest, giving them prophet and priest status to all those who were redeemed. There is no longer a select community of prophets and priests as it was in the Old Testament. Now those who are redeemed are the prophets and the priests of God. During the Old Testament period, there was only a small community of God's chosen orators declaring the word of God. That meant that there was a limited saturation of the gospel message. But now, in the New Testament age where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, reigning as king of all kings and lords, the landscape of human civilization can be dramatically altered to the point where righteousness and the knowledge of God can impact all flesh because there are myriads of saints preaching the world. But when the church of Jesus Christ sequesters its people in the four-wall ghetto church, that saturation cannot happen. When we think that we can worship God and stay home and not train our children to be lions, the saturation of the gospel cannot happen and darkness envelops the world. Consider the apostolic era as a result of this spiritual outpouring. So what happened after Pentecost? Everybody just went home and had a meal. No, no. Missionary travels were exploding Peter and Paul and James and John and others, the setting up of churches within and amidst the Roman Empire was happening every day during the time of the early church fathers, the second and the third and the fourth century. That continued. It expanded the kingdom and advanced the gospel. Roman centurions were bringing the news of the Christ and his Lord to the farthest regions of the Roman realm, far north as Hadrian's Wall in Scotland. And during the time of the separation of the church in the east and the west after Constantine, the church was split at that time. But by 400, after Constantine declared his empire a Christian realm, by 400, Christianity through the missionary work of Nestorius and others, was introduced into Persia, India, Korea, China, and Japan. It was going everywhere because men were moved by the Spirit. By the 600s, Christianity was so strong in the Orient that it became the national religion until the death of Kublai Khan. In the Orient... By the beginning of the ninth century, the number of Christians in the East and in the Orient actually outnumbered the number in the Western portion of Europe. China was called the Ta Chin religion, and the Ta Chin actually meant Christianity. 
a monument was actually discovered in China in 1625. It was nine feet, is nine feet, whether they took it down now, who knows, nine feet high, three feet wide, one foot thick, and engraved upon it was the Greek Orthodox Nestorian cross and the Chinese inscription detailing the religion of Ta Chin. It was erected in 781 AD. And this is what it said. A monument commemorating the propagation of the Cha Chin religion in the Middle Kingdom of China. The propagation of Christianity in the Middle Kingdom of China. Nestorian missionaries wrote 530 manuscripts of the Christian religion in China. The Nestorian cross has been found throughout China along with Nestorius' manuscripts. In the West, men like Gregory and Charlemagne and Alfred, all Christian reformers and evangelical men moved by the same spirit that moved Peter in A.D. 33 and the 3,000 at Pentecost, moved them to promote the Christian faith in Europe, coupled with the Reformation theology of St. Augustine and the biblical law codification of even Justinian of the Byzantium Empire. Alfred and Charlemagne brought to the Western civilization the law of God. They had the law of God. They brought forth the law of God to structure their societies. The biblical structure of society and government was the law of God. And that movement spread into the barbarian regions of the Vikings where it converted King Olaf and Leif Erikson, bringing the Christian faith to Greenland, Iceland, and North America. You think about one day where God pours His Spirit, you've got a worldwide explosion. And through even some of the more dubious motives, Christ is preached and Christianity is advanced throughout the world. Now whenever there's a great apostasy, as it was during Israel's apostasy in the Old Testament, there was always the promise of biblical reformation, as there should be even today. Peter was consistently preaching reformation and reconstruction theology. He was returning the people back to the true God and back to his law as the organizing principle of a free and ethical society. A society that God would be pleased to bless, not curse. Peter was pointing back to Jehovah's law and his comprehensive rule over all flesh and to man's responsibility to him as the one true God. Likewise did Wycliffe, Huss, Luther, and Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, and so many others, the Puritans, John Owen, and Thomas Watson. They did that in 14, 15, and 16th centuries. You see, during the time of extreme apostasy, as we are living in today, God can bring extreme results through the work of the Holy Spirit upon men and women, boys and girls of courage and ethical purity. But we need to be courageous. We need to be men of faith, women of faith, boys and girls of faith. We need to recognize that God is with us. He's in the midst of us. And He is mighty. These saints of history like their predecessors, Peter, James, and John, Clement and Barnabas, Augustine, so many others of the early centuries were determined to bring about human and social change. I think we're just too comfortable with the changes that we've been accustomed to. I think we're just saying, well, it's not that bad. Well, it's not that bad until it becomes that bad. And when it becomes that bad, we probably would have missed much opportunity to make it right. John Calvin stated that his goal was to, quote, bring the actuality of the Christian faith to the community in a comprehensive fashion. 
His goal was the goal in every age by every true saint. It was to structure every aspect of society and every institution of society back to the Word of God. Individual, family, everything. Back to the Word of God. We must understand that our commission is to deal with every issue, legislative issues, judicial issues, as well as theological and ecclesiastical issues. Because the only true Christianity, which is what God has given us, is a comprehensive and global Christianity. So our Christianity must be comprehensive and global if it is to be true. And as an encouragement, God has given us his word, his spirit, and his testimony of history to profit thereby. The testimony of history, you can read it in a book and say, this is what my God is doing. This is what he has done. And he is the same today as he is yesterday and will be forever. He can do this again if only we bow before his majesty. May God move us as he has moved so many men in the past to deliver his truth with such power and determination that everyone who hears our voice because of our passion, because of our hungering and thirsting at the righteousness, because of our determination and our unwillingness to compromise or to be swallowed up by secularism, so that everyone that hears our voice will be compelled to say, they speaketh as one with authority and not as the scribes. May this be our testimony. May this be our work. May this be our goal. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.